Welcome everyone to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are discussing, this is going to be part one of a multi-part series on Albert Camus' The Rebel, an essay on man in revolt. Um, this is basically the second work of nonfiction that he is most famous for, first being the myth of Sisyphus, which we already did a full episode on. So we're not going to rehash all of the ideas there. If you want that, you can check out our episode on the myth of Sisyphus. Um, I will sum it up sh uh, really shortly just so that, you know, kind of we know where we're going because the rebel is sort of, though not really exactly, which I'll talk about more in a second, uh, part two in Camus' exploration of the absurd, which is his main philosophy, his sort of approach to life, I guess, is kind of a weird way of putting it. In fact, I hate that. Let's not go with that. Um, it's not an approach to life, which we'll talk about. I have a specific quote on that in a second. Anyways. His view of the universe is the absurd. Um, in short, in the myth of Sisyphus, he argues that humans have a desire for knowledge and meaning, but that the universe is inexplicable and unable to provide any meaning for human existence. As a result, we are faced with this sort of eternal contradiction between our desire for meaning and the universe's complete lack of meaning for human existence. And the result of that contradiction is the absurd. That's the absurd for Camus, which he explains in depth in the myth of Sisyphus. So he said, in the face of this, we must either take a leap of faith uh, into some explanation that cannot be verified, i.e. religion, etc., or we must continuously confront the absurd. In the myth of Sisyphus, his task is to investigate suicide. So when confronted with the absurd, with this knowledge, is suicide a viable escape? He concludes that it is not because it violates the logic of the absurd. So we have basically three things, man's desire for knowledge, the universe uh, not providing that knowledge, and then the absurd, he says suicide is not viable logically because it will remove man's desire for knowledge, it basically removes man from the equation. So suicide uh, is not an option. And then he provides some more examples in that work of how people live, Don Juanism, actors and drama and conquest, I think are the three examples he provides that we've gone through in depth. So he's exploring suicide. The rebel, he is exploring murder, basically. Uh, specifically rebellion and revolution, but the overarching topic is murder. And in order to understand how he arrived there, because it's kind of interesting, right? Like you go from suicide to murder. We have to understand that in the time between, he pub between him publishing these two works, a lot happens globally, really. So the myth of Sisyphus was written in 1942 and the rebel was written in 1951. So in those nine or 10 years, very clearly, if you know anything about global history, a lot of stuff happened. And Camus was fighting with the French resistance in World War II eventually, though that's a whole other topic. Um, so between 1942 and 1951, clearly a lot of things happened. The full sort of, I mean, the full brunt of the Nazi atrocities come to light globally. People now know what they were doing and just, I mean, how completely just asinine and disgusting all of the things were and all of the crimes that they were committing. And so Camus is now interested in this new topic, right? Murder. 
uh, as a result of the things that have gone on during this 10-year period. Before we get into that, what that means for him, we have to understand when you're reading, the, if you've read the myth of Sisyphus and then you go to read the rebel, understand that it is an evolution of Camus' thinking inspired by this 10-year period. It's not merely an extension of the myth of Sisyphus. I made this mistake personally when I read it for the first time. I was looking for just kind of more detail about his ideas in the myth of Sisyphus. I didn't understand that he actually changes his perspective a little bit between the two books. In fact, I think you mentioned last time it's a shame he died at such a young age because we didn't get to see the full evolution of his philosophy. You're absolutely right, but we do see a, a little tiny evolution between the myth of Sisyphus and the rebel, which we'll talk about the details of um, in a few minutes. Do you have anything to add yet? No, I mean, I think there's a couple of interesting things he has to say here in the introduction that you're going to get to, but it kind of frames, because I don't know that it, it, it's important to talk about when we dig mm -hmm. into the ideas of the philosophies that are being um, illuminated here, but it kind of mm -hmm. frames what he's thinking. He says, it, regarding this, this time and place that he's writing. He says, one might think that a period which in a space of 50 years uproots, enslaves, or kills 70 million human beings should be condemned out of hand. Um, and I think that's kind of like just that one quote basically encapsulates everything you're talking about, about mm -hmm. he has lived, experienced, and how that is going to impact his thoughts now on, um, on the absurd. And that's a really good quote that I had here too, because it, for us, Hints at the philosophical debate that Camus was entering into with this work and others. Um, so like you said, he says, quote, one might think that a period which in a space of 50 years uproots enslaved or killed 70 million human beings should be condemned out of hand, but its culpability must still be understood. We must still understand what happened here because Camus argues the same thing, similar things are still happening. And he's specifically talking about, in this sense, Stalin's Soviet Union. Um, and so the philosophical debate that was happening at the time was, you know, some people argued that perhaps thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not maybe even millions of lives had to be expended for us to progress to a more desirable, peaceful, comfortable sort of utopic future. And so there were people that were making that argument that were excusing not so much like what the Nazis did under Nazism, but the simple fact that perhaps it is possible that we have to go through, you know, the sl not slaying, but the murders of a significant amount of the global population, perhaps, in order for us to make progress. Now, most people nowadays would be like, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. We shouldn't do that, clearly. But there is an argument to be had of, you know, if we could kill whatever, I'm going to make these numbers up. If we could kill 10 people now to save, you know, 10,000 later, is that viable? That's not a debate we're going to have right now, but that is the debate that was happening at the time, mostly because of what the Soviet Union was doing. And this debate comes to a head between Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, who are best friends, and then get into this debate because Sartre was a staunch supporter of the Soviet Union and Camus was not, even though they were both communists. This debate comes to a head between them and their writing and them as individuals, and it becomes so heated that their friendship explodes and they are no longer friends. And in fact, Sartre writes a scathing critique of The Rebel when it is published, largely as a result of this debate that's going on between them and his position on the issue. So just interesting. Um, and we'll get to Camus' critique of Marxism as a dogma and Stalin's Soviet Union. Clearly, that's a part of The Rebel later on. Um, right now, I think we forgot to mention this. This episode is going to cover the introduction and then part one 
of the book. So that's what this uh, episode is. And then the next one will clearly be the next part and so forth. Camus says, um, he puts it well here, I think, kind of talking about framing it historically. He says, quote, in the age of negation, it was, some, to, it was of some avail to examine one's position concerning suicide. In the age of ideologies, we must examine our position in relation to murder. So the age of negation that he's talking about, he's talking about nihilism, which for him and many people at the time, most many people still today, is exemplified by the Nazi regime. Um, and so Camus is kind of saying during this period of just absolute despair, one is confronted with the absurd and can really just survive by maintaining an awareness of the absurd. But we no longer live in now World War II has ended, et cetera. The Nazis have been defeated. We no longer it, it live in this age of just absolute despair, this age of nihilism, this age of negation. But atrocities are still being committed. Murder is still happening, quote unquote, everywhere um, across the globe. But now, instead of being motivated by some manifestation of nihilism, they're now being inspired by ideologies. Um, specifically, Camus is focusing on Marxism in this case, which we'll get to in his critique of that, and Stalin's Soviet Union, his debate with Sartre, etc. So he says, when we were faced with absolute despair, we had to explore suicide as a potential response to that. Now that we're not anymore, but murder equivalent murder is still being taken out, though inspired by different things, we must understand this murder. And as people facing the absurd, we must understand how we now can act. How can we now act in the face of absurdist existence? If the goal is merely to exist in this age of despair, now we must understand how we can act as absurdists. How can we live specifically in this era of calculated murder? Um, yeah, I like to think that this isn't perfect, but I like to think because it helps me sort of categorize the two books that the myth of Sisyphus explores merely how to understand and face the absurd without killing yourself. Is that an, a logical conclusion? And Camus says no, whereas the rebel focuses on how to stay alive and how to live during this uh, period of what he calls calculated murder, logical crime, etc. Now that we're not uh, any longer living in a period of nihilism. But before we can act, he says we must investigate the topic of murder and discover whether or not it is acceptable, really morally is what he's getting after. Okay, anything before we dive into the introduction of the book itself? We're living in the era of pre-meditation and the perfect crime. Our criminals are no longer helpless children who could plead love as their excuse. On the contrary, they are adults and they have a perfect alibi, philosophy, which can be used for any purpose, even for transforming murderers into judges. I like that. I think it encapsulates again what you were just discussing. No, that's perfect. And that's his whole goal here, right? He calls these crimes of logic and he, he talks about extensively like crimes of passion, right? Uh, you know, killing your lover, etc., and he says, those we understand and we understand their motivation. But now we have crimes that are what he calls logical. They're done in the name of philosophy, in the name of ideology, in the name of reason and rationality. Right. And he says that this is a new phenomenon, that we're in this new era. I mean, we he's in the 1950s. Right. The, in the 1950s was this new era where rationalism, the mm -hmm. systemic and rational extermination of millions of people, you know, not passionately in God's name nor as the result of nihilism, but logically, in the name of progress, in the name of ideologies, right, 
is this okay? He says, and these people that are doing this claim innocence because they can say, you know, well, it's just rational that we must do this according to our philosophical belief system or our ideology. We must do this in order so that we can get to the next phase of human development or the next phase in history. So we can get to another stage of existence where we'll all be more comfortable and more enlightened and more fulfilled and happier and like whatever the ideology is, right? Right. Um, we're not going to go into specifics yet. He will do that himself, right? So but they're saying that they're- rational, But if murder has rational foundations, then our period, and we see ourselves are rationally consequence. If it has no rational foundations, then we are insane and there is no alternative but to find some justification or to avert our, uh, our faces. Exactly. So I think what he's also doing here is he's trying to look at both sides of the coin here, like regarding rationalism and murder and then, of course, the attachment of ideology or what he's calling philosophy, at least in, at, at least in the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, I think that's something that we have to like understand is that throughout this process as he's really digging in, He's not necessarily speaking in absolutes, at least not in the beginning. He's mm-hmm. willing to entertain the, like these different parts of rationalism and philosophy and maybe probably, not even maybe, definitely romanticizing prior understandings of what murder was. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in the face of what he experienced, we can't lose the context of the back-to-back World War experience. We can't lose that, right? That's why he starts with it in the introduction. And trying to find some sort of, he himself, trying to find some sort of rationalization within the absurd, um, not just the absurd that he's talking about in the myth of Sisyphus now, but the absurd of, of experiencing um, Nazism, Stalinism, etc. Yeah, and I think it's, it's an important, the time is important and his work is important historically, given the context, right? Because it was easy, I think, for people to say, well, like the Nazis were just like, off their rockers, right? They were insane. So we, uh, you know, we, the global, the allies came together and defeated the Nazis. And now we're all good. Like, thank God that that's over. And Camus saying it's not over. It's still happening in different parts of the world. There is still large populations of people being killed off, but it's now under the name of like philosophy and science and ideology. People are now doing this in ways that they think are rational. I mean, they are rational, right? Like, according to them, like it's part of our belief structure that we must carry out this act in order for us to achieve this future. So Camus is like basically, you know, blowing the whistle and be like, it's not just the Nazis, right? This is still happening and we need to understand why. And more importantly, we need to understand why for ourselves, like, is this okay? And if it is, then we have to ask that question. If not, then like he says, we're insane. We have to at least avert our eyes, you know? Well, and that's, 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 I think, what he's trying to drive home. And, and people don't like to hear this um, either in classrooms or on podcasts or whatever, but, but Nazism is merely the most extreme rationalization of Western mm-hmm. philosophy to begin with. Like, yeah. we like to separate what the Allies stood for and what the Nazis stood for, but they essentially stand for the same thing. The Nazis just took it to a level that apparently was deemed unacceptable, and I also deem it unacceptable. They are horrific human beings. But mm-hmm. let's let's be clear here. The English are allies, and they used many of the tactics that the Nazis used even after World War II, as we learned in concentration camps in places mm-hmm. like Kenya um, or Tanzania. Uh, we also know that they're responsible for their own Holocaust in India called the Victorian Holocaust, and let's not let the United States off the hook. Their ethnic cleansing campaigns against First Nations are, are legion at this point in time. So even though the Nazis end up being like the most extreme case of this rationalized murder, um, I learned it from watching you, dad. No, I mean, like they did. They took a lot. 
they take a lot of the inspiration from these that's other right. Western philosophies. Like, yeah. and that's something that we just don't want to acknowledge. We don't want to make that connection. Nazism was part of Western philosophy. I'm trying to find the book because there's a really, really good book that I use in the lecture when we talk about this, when we talk about scientism and stuff. I can't find it right now, though. I'll post it in the notes, but it makes that exact argument that Nazism was just rationality to its logical conclusion, right? Which speaks to the appalling nature of, of, to me, at least, and and here comes my bias, of of some of the appalling nature of Western philosophy in general. Yeah, yeah. We, totally. we love to pat ourselves on the back for all of these various things that we've mm-hmm. accomplished over time and space, but at what cost, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. what Camus is trying to get us to think about, at what cost. Yeah, I read a really interesting article actually today where they asked 10 philosophers, what are the questions that aren't being explored right now that should be? Interestingly, Raymond Goyce was one of them that we use in our class right. on ideology. But one of the philosophers said, I think that one of the things that we should all be investigating is what if Western philosophy wasn't the dominant philosophical system. How would the globe be different? You know what I mean? And I think that's a valid question, clearly. I mean, I, I would argue there wouldn't have been back-to-back world wars, yeah, probably, probably not, not transatlantic right. slave trades and, and so on. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I would argue that those things wouldn't have existed. So, right. I mean, there's some benefit. Uh, All right, here's another quote that I like from Camus. He says, quote, slave camps under the flag of freedom, massacres justified by philanthropy or by a taste for the superhuman in one sense, crippled judgment. So he's saying now, you know, now the, we we see, you know, gulags in the Soviet Union and they're being done under the flag of freedom. We see massacres being carried out, like Jared said, you know, by the British and they're being justified by philosophy, justified by, you know, economic development and all of like, you know, economics and like all these different things are justifying atrocities similar to what was going on in Nazi Germany. And Camus is like saying, guys, this is unacceptable, right? Says, and I cannot stress that that, that that even though we have been, again, because of the binary paradigm of the Cold War, been socialized into thinking like Russia or the Soviet Union, the United States, NATO versus Warsaw Pact and, 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 and capitalism versus communism. But communism is also Western philosophy, right? Yep. It is a Western yeah. philosophy. That, that, that binary paradigm is also manufactured. Right. He says, hence, if we claim to adopt the absurdist attitude, we must prepare ourselves to commit murder, thus admitting that logic is more important than scruples that we consider illusory. And I love that quote because Mm -hmm. that's essentially what we're discussing at this point in time or what he's discussing. You can rationalize away all types of amazing, amazingly horrific crimes, gulags in the Soviet Union, concentration camps at Auschwitz or Dachau or Sobibor or whatever. Um, the boarding schools that we've discussed um, for uh, First Nation children, in which, of course, uh, uh, young girls were given forced hysterectomies against their will so that they no longer would, of course, spread um, spread the seed of First Nations. Like these are the types of things that extreme rationality led to these crimes within the absurdist attitude, I think, is what he's discussing. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting that, you know, 10 years later comes Marcuse that takes this analysis, I think, one step further, talking about the irrationality of rationality and so forth in One Dimensional Man and in other places. If you're interested in that, we have a whole series on that also, of Marcuse's work. Um, Camus says, quote, our purpose is to find out whether innocence, the moment it becomes involved in action, can avoid committing murder. We can act only in terms of our own time among the people who surround us. We shall know nothing until we know whether we have the right to kill our fellow men or the right to let them be killed. In that every action today leads to murder, direct or indirect, we cannot act until we know whether or why we have the right to kill. I love the last yeah. part of that quote. 
you know, every action today, indirect or directly, leads to murder. And I think that that, you know, should ring true probably for all of us, if not more so now than it did. Yeah, even more so now than in the the 50s. Yeah, for sure. With a neoliberal globalized market. Absolutely. So the question is, does awareness of the absurd require an indifference to violence and murder? At first, Camus sort of kind of suggests yes. He says, quote, Awareness of the absurd when we first claim to deduce a rule of behavior from it makes murder seem a matter of indifference, to say the least, and hence possible. If we believe in nothing, if nothing has any meaning, and if we can affirm no values whatsoever, then everything is possible and nothing has any importance. There is no pro or con. The murder is neither right nor wrong. We are free to stoke the crematory fires or to devote ourselves to the care of lepers. Evil and virtue are mere change or caprice. And this is a famous quote. Um... We are free to stoke the crematory fires or devote ourselves to the care of lepers. So he says, if there's no values, then either of those things are equal, right? They're equally acceptable. But here he is describing absolute nihilism, where there are no values whatsoever, which is not the same as absurdism. And we talk about this more in the myth of Sisyphus, but now I view this as kind of an evolution of Camus' thinking. He doesn't contradict what he says in the myth of Sisyphus, but he takes it a different direction here with I think is different. He does establish one value that comes out of the absurd, and it is the value of human life. So if there are three things in his, you know, tripartite of the absurd, which is human desire for meaning, the universe being the universe and its inexplicability, and then the absurd, well, if one of those things is the human desire for meaning, then human life must have value, because without human life, then there would be no essentially beings to experience existence, right? He says, it is obvious that absurdism hereby admits that human life is the only necessary good. It is pre- since it is precisely life that makes this encounter possible. And since without life, the absurdist wager would have no basis. To say that life is absurd, the conscious must be alive. So there's one thing of value, one thing that's positive here, and it is human existence, according to Camus' model of the absurd. What do you think about that? I mean, based on what we learned about in the myth of Sisyphus, it's actually, it kind of makes sense to me in a way that we see a little bit of an evolution here, not a negation of what he was saying there, but like that kind of evolution. I'm looking for a quote right now that kind of makes that, that bridge uh, work for us. Okay, here it is. Murder cannot be made coherent when suicide is not considered coherent. Yep, Exactly. He says, um, um, and that, that, that we can see, like, it's not yeah. necessarily like that's that, you know, the myth of Sisyphus can't be contained just in that quote, but it kind of mm-hmm. shows that idea of, of bridging the gap between these two concepts, his notion of the absurd and suicide solution to the absurd. And then, of course, murder within the idea of the absurd and trying to bridge that gap. Yeah, he says, from the moment that life is recognized as good, it becomes good for all men. Then your sentence was next, right? Murder cannot be made coherent when suicide is not considered coherent. So if we can't kill ourselves, then we must realize that we can't kill other people, right? right? If our life is valuable, then we can't devalue the life of human beings. But this presents a contradiction. At the same time, we can murder because there are no values, but we cannot murder because life itself is valued as a part of the absurdist experience. So Camus says, quote, in actual fact, this form of reasoning assures Uh, are the same thing that we can kill and that we cannot kill. It abandons us in this contradiction with no grounds either for preventing or for justifying murder. 
menacing and menaced, swept along with a whole generation intoxicated by nihilism and yet lost in loneliness with weapons in our hands and a lump in our throats. So he says, this is the contradiction that we must uh, live in. However, many people have struggled with this, I think with nihilism also, because they think that nihilism or the absurd, which is what we're discussing here, is like a guide for how to live your life. That's not a thing, right? And so he says, quote, this basic contradiction, however, cannot fail to be accompanied by a host of others from the moment we claim to remain firmly in the absurdist position and ignore the real nature of the absurd, which is that it is an experience to be lived through. It is a point of departure. He continues later on, quote, the absurd continues considered as a rule of life is therefore contradictory, which is what is astonishing about the fact that it does not provide us with values which, we, which will enable us to decide whether murder is legitimate or not. But we shouldn't consider the absurd as a rule of life. We shouldn't consider it as what dictates the way that we should rule our life. The absurdist must, must either murder or through non-action consent, consent to murder. So interesting. We're faced with this contradiction, right? So how does Camus get out of this? He says, quote, I pro proclaim that I believe in nothing and that everything is absurd, but I cannot doubt the validity of my proclamation. And I must at least believe in my protest. The first and only evidence is that the first and only evidence that is supplied me within the term of the absurdist experience is rebellion. So I proclaim that I believe in nothing, but I am forced to accept my proclamation as a truth. So there is a truth. It's not absolute nihilism. It is not absolute negation. It's something altogether different. My protest against the status quo is valid. I must consider that at least to be true. And then he begins the next section, which is talking about a rebel. Anything to add before we go into that section? Rebellion is born of the spectacle of irrationality confronted with an unjust and incomprehensible condition. But its blind impulse is to demand order in the midst of chaos and unity in the very heart of the ephemeral. I Love think it. that kind of like sets the stage for this discussion, challenging the I mean, the traditionally like kind of mopey, nothing has any meaning nihilism that a lot mm -hmm. of people, at least today, um, attach to the philosophy where in reality, that's not what Camus would want. He's, mm -hmm. he's very clear here regarding this meaning can be found in rebellion. And that's, I think, a good segue to part one, which is where he actually yeah. discusses the rebel. And I mean, someday in our series on nihilism, we will get yeah. into the difference between like passive nihilism and active nihilism and so forth. But right. Yeah, passive nihilism is like, you know, nothing means anything, so I will do right. nothing, right? That's essentially passive. Um, Camus is more here talking about sort of an active version of absurdism, I think is a good way to put it, where we must act all the while maintaining our awareness of our absurdist existence, right? So he says, a man, a rebel is, quote, a man who says no, but whose refusal does not imply a renunciation. He is also a man who says yes from the moment he makes his first gesture of rebellion. A slave who has taken orders all his life suddenly decides that he cannot obey some new command. And Camus uses this sort of device throughout. He paints a picture of a slave who has had enough and rebels against his master. And Camus argues that in this moment of rebellion, the slave recognizes something within himself that must be protected, that he is now willing to protect, that has value, something within himself that has value. 
He says, quote, the part of himself that he wanted to be respected, he proceeds to place above everything else and proclaims it prefer preferable to everything, even to life itself. It becomes for him the supreme good. Having up to now been willing to compromise, the slave suddenly adopts, because this is how it must be, an attitude of all or nothing. With rebellion, awareness is born, right? So the slave in his moment of rebellion, and anyone really, it doesn't have to be a slave, if you're confronted with the absurd and you say no, right? Enough is enough. In that moment, you are realizing, you're recognizing something within yourself that you are willing to protect, whatever that is and whatever, however that manifests uh, in your era and in your individual life, something for you at that moment has value. This is a bit different than um, the myth of Sisyphus. And I have a quote here from the myth of Sisyphus to just to, you know, kind of exemplify this evolution. Camus says, but what does life mean in such an absurd universe? Nothing else for the moment, but indifference to the future and a desire to use up everything that is given. Belief in the meaning of life always implies a scale of values, a choice of preferences. Belief in the absurd, according to our definitions, teaches the contrary. So he's saying the belief in the myth of Sisyphus, right? Belief in the absurd is a complete absence of values. But the second that we act, all of a sudden now there are values. Because I must at least, at the very least, value whatever is inside myself that has inspired me to protect it, that has inspired me to rebel. In this case, you know, the slave rebellion against his master and so forth. Go ahead. But I mean, it's also kind of a question and he asks it right here uh, on page 14 for those of you that might be following. No, um, not every value entails rebellion, but every act of rebellion tacitly invokes a value. Or is it really a question of values? And I like that because mm -hmm. he's not being absolute here. He's actually yep. looking at it through these two lenses. The rebellion itself does. It invokes this idea that there is a value and it is worth, of course, rebelling for. But it also draws into critical inquiry um, this idea of what is value and where, how does that value applied contextually over across time and space? Mm -hmm. And the individual's experience experiences within those different varied times and spaces. He says, in every act of rebellion, the rebel simultaneously experiences a feeling of revulsion at the infringement of his rights and a complete and spontaneous loyalty to certain aspects of himself. Thus, he implicitly brings into play a standard of values so far from being gratuitous that he is prepared to support it no matter what the risks, end quote. Essentially, he, it, it's so valuable to him that he is the rebel, is willing to die to protect this part of himself. Now, this conclusion by Camus sounds simple, but it's actually a really profound philosophical statement because he's arguing against the quote unquote, he calls them historical philosophies, which argue that values are acquired, quote, after action has been completed. Um, he suggests that values are internal and permanent to human beings, but are only discovered through rebellion. I'm going to read a quote here and then we'll come back to why this is important. He says, quote, analysis of rebellion leads to leads at least to the suspicion that, contrary to the postulates of contemporary thought, a human nature does, does exist, as the Greeks believed. Why rebel if there is nothing permanent in oneself worth preserving? Right. So Camus would argue that human nature does exist, but we are unaware of it until we confront the absurd and until we rebel. And in the moment of rebellion, we recognize what is within ourself that is valuable, what is permanent and what we are in that moment willing to protect. Now, what might these historical philosophies, quote unquote, be that he is talking about here? 
So, I mean, those are, I mean, I was going to go with those that purport some sort of moral or ethical superiority. So, mm-hmm. of course, all of the great world religions, but also some of the other like one size fits all ideologies we've analyzed um, in this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Like these these larger divine right type of philosophies, or maybe even if we get a little further into history, these ideas of free markets, um, of liberalism, of republicanism, these ideas that apply or assume some sort of moral or ethical superiority. Um, but I think here's the interesting part before I even go further in, in describing these. I think there's an interesting discussion that he's having here regarding topics, not necessarily related to what we're talking about today, but I think it's interesting. I could not stop thinking when I read this quote about the debate between historical idealism and historical materialism. Um, and him actually, I think very succinctly arguing for a reflexive relationship between the two with Mm -hmm. these quotes. And I think that's actually, it was almost like a, I don't know, like it seemed like it was a negotiation process that we've been having as we've had these discussions over the years, you, you, you and you and I, and then mm-hmm. here in a mere couple of sentences, I think he he very succinctly says like, this is just the way it works. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I 100% agree with the process, but I think he actually did a better job of summing it up than maybe, than Hegel or Marx. Mm-hmm. Um, but He's specifically arguing here, yeah, you're spot on, because he is specifically arguing here actually against historical materialism. And Marxism in this capacity. Right. So when he's referring to historical philosophies, that's what he's saying, right? So where historical materialism is that we must act and interact with the material world, and that gives us our way of thinking. In this context, it gives us our values. Camus says, basically, that's absolute nonsense, that the thing that is valuable has always been within us internally. We discover it uh, as a result of our rebellion. It's not that it doesn't exist and it comes into being as a result of our rebellion. It's always been there and we are just made aware of it through our rebellion. What the really simple, were but, calling, you know, before him, 50 years, 60 years before him, like this old natural law. We don't need top down legislation mm-hmm. because, of course, there's this inherent understanding um, of ethics. Mm hmm. Um, and but here's I guess where Camus is different than than Bakunin or whoever else it, it, it is is Camus is arguing that there actually has to be some sort of action for us to come to this realization or awakening. Right. I don't know that Bakunin or Kropotkin or any of those other earlier philosophers mm-hmm. um, felt like you needed any of that that it was already innate and you were aware of it. But yeah, and it's not just any action, right? For Camus, right. it specifically has to be rebellion. We rebellion. specifically mm-hmm. has to say no, right? We have to stand up to oppression. And in that, we become aware of our internal value, right? The part of ourselves as human beings that is valuable. So two things really happen, according to Camus, in the instant of rebellion. The first we've already discussed at length, which is man discovers something within himself of value, something worth, worth preserving. We see that. The second thing is also important, and that is that man is forced to acknowledge the existence of this quote unquote thing, right? of value, this aspect of individuals within all other human beings as well. So as a result of rebelling, man also develops solidarity with all other human beings. Go ahead. I think there were the two observations I just really wanted your input on as I was Mm -hmm. kind of through them as well. The two observations support the argument we just got done discussing regarding like this innate understanding of of Mm -hmm. And these are my words, not his, but like an ethical understanding of the way things work. He says, first, we can see that an act of rebellion is not essentially an egoist act. Of course, it can have egoist motives. I want your thoughts on that because I was struggling Mm -hmm. a little bit. Again, we have not done. I know we're going to go back and do it, but we have not done Sterner. And Sterner is often cited, maybe incorrectly, Mm -hmm. as kind of like an egoist anarchist. I wanted your thoughts on this idea of egoism, rebellion, 
um, not being an egoist act, regardless of it having some egoist motives. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So this is linked to what I was just saying. This is a perfect time to have this conversation. So for Camus, every act of rebellion, even if we're not aware of it, is a social act in solidarity with all other human beings because we are protecting that thing within us that is valuable that also exists within all other human beings. So the first act in the very instant of the first act of rebellion, we as individuals are not aware of this thing within us that is valuable or our solidarity with all other human beings. But through this act of rebellion, we become aware of this thing of value and we become aware of our solidarity with human beings. But even if we're not aware of it, us being willing to rebel and protect that thing within us and value that we value also protects that thing of value within all other human beings. So it's not egoist in that we're not rebelling solely to protect ourselves, even if we might think that we are, because through the act of rebellion, we are also protecting that thing within all other human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I, I could go on, but I think that that sums it up pretty well. So it is a social act, even if we as individuals are doing it just to protect ourselves. It's inherently yeah. social, I guess. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the second observation for me wasn't wasn't as big a deal. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess we can comment on it real fast since I said there was two. But moreover, the rebel, once he has accepted the motives at the moment of his greatest impetus, preserves nothing and then he risks everything. I do feel like that one's a lot more self-explanatory, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I figure I should at least chime in with the second part yeah. of solidifying his argument. Okay. And once we get to Sterner... Sterner actually argues sort of the, I don't want to say the same thing because I risk every like egoist getting like irate, but like whatever. He isn't as individualistic, I guess, let's say it that way, as most people make him out to be, even though like we're going to see there are very specific things that he says that are highly individualistic and egoistic. But he says, as a result, you know, of acting as this individual, you also are, must recognize the action of all other individuals, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of the same thing that Camus is saying that, you know, rebellion is a social act, even if you don't mean it to be, even if you yourself as an individual are doing it egoistically, because you're protecting everyone else's, you know, thing and value that it, in themselves as well, and their rebellion also, right? So it's just kind of inherently, even if you don't want it to be, it's a social act. Um, he says, man's solidarity is founded upon rebellion, and rebellion in its turn can only find its justification in this solidarity. Now, This is very, very, very important because I'm going to read that last turn, that last part again. Rebellion can only find its justification in this solidarity. Camus argues that humanity, quote unquote, humanity is an abstract concept that as an abstract concept, I guess is probably a better way to put it, as an abstract concept is discovered through rebellion, Mm -hmm. through this discovery of the common value within each human being. The, you know, humanity as an abstract concept comes into being. We become aware of it. He says, and this is the famous way that he ends this section, I rebel, therefore we exist. So through my individual act of rebellion, humanity and the solidarity of all human beings within one another is essentially brought into existence. We become aware of this solidarity through this rebellion. Any thoughts on that before the final point I want to make here? No, I, I want to follow up with another amazing quote in this section. Okay. It says, in absurdist experience, suffering is individual, but from the moment when a movement of rebellion begins, suffering is seen as a collective experience. I might actually have just repeated what you had said, but... No, I didn't think I read that one. But yeah, that's a really good one. That Yes, exactly. Um, 
And then there's also like, again, the, the little section on resentment versus envy, but I don't know mm-hmm. that we really need to get into that um, yeah. to understand the, the, the spirit of rebellion. Mm-hmm. I kind of went light. He talks about that extensively through the introduction and this first part. Right. I went light on that because it will come, it will be more illuminated through the rest of the text. I think okay. he gets, once he gets into examples, it's much easier for us to talk about this, which is why I'm going really light on his critique of Marxism here, because he writes about it himself clearly, and we'll cover that extensively when we get to that section. Okay, let's hit that um, last point. Okay, so the last point is, because you might ask yourself, how do we know if a rebellion is a true rebellion or not? Because this is what's going to guide us for the rest of the book. He says, we have then the right to say that any rebellion which claims the right to deny or destroy this solidarity loses simultaneously its right to be called a rebellion and becomes in reality an acquiescence to murder. I'm going to read that one more time. So I think this is probably the most important point here. We have then the right to say that any rebellion which claims the right to deny or destroy this solidarity loses simultaneously its right to be called rebellion and becomes in reality an acquiescence to murder. I've also seen another translation that translates that as a a compliance, an accomplice to murder instead of acquiescence to murder. But I think the same or similar. So any movement which functions to destroy the solidarity of human beings with one another is not a rebellion, but is murder outright. And so that is Camus, you know, value proposition, I think, for how do we know if a rebellion is legit or not? How do we know if it's a true, you know, sort of absurdist rebellion in Camus' eyes, it's whether it is rebelling in the name of human solidarity or whether it is functioning to destroy human solidarity. And that will kind of be our guiding, you know, our compass as we go through the rest of this work. When he's talking about different movements, this is sort of what he's judging them against, whether they are, you know, fighting for this inter- this thing internal to us, to all human beings that is valuable or whether it is functioning to destroy and separate human beings. I think it's actually, it seems a little difficult to digest, but it's actually a really, really simple and powerful way, I think, to view the legitimacy of, you know, revolutions and different movements uh, throughout history, which is what he's going to do clearly in the rest of the work that we're going to cover. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think to kind of like cement that, he says the spirit of rebellion can exist only in a society where a theoretical equality conceals great factual inequalities. At first, I had a little bit of a problem with this Mm -hmm. quote in the section where he's basically limiting his notion of rebellion to Western civilization. Uh, Although when he explains it, I'm willing to kind of give him a pass because he's critiquing, as we just got done talking about for the last 10 minutes, critiquing Western philosophies that have guided us to mass murder and things in back-to-back world wars and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. He's critiquing those. So it's only natural that he would argue an act of rebellion against that absurdity would be also Western within its context. Um, I'm still not completely sold on his idea of there not being um, rebellions in his specific examples he uses are like primitive societies or Hindu castes systems Mm -hmm. or even like ancient Greek society or things along those lines. But I'm willing to entertain it now because his critique is in Western modernity. So essentially this notion of rebellion, this this idea of finding meaning in that existence must be within, and this is again, I'm going to repeat that part of the quote that's most um, appealing for me, 
within a society of theoretical equality that conceals great factual inequalities. And of course, you know, we have to be staring at these modern republic style liberal mm-hmm. economies and political institutions that, you know, all men are created equal and blah, blah, blah. But, but in reality, none of that actually is applied. So I think that I, I really like that. And I think there's two ways to interpret. There's two main points on that quote that you just said I like about how essentially the spirit of rebellion in Camus' sense, can only manifest itself in Western societies that you just described. There's two ways to think about that. The first is what you just said, which I think is the most accurate way. The second is, what I read into that is, sort of like we talk about with, you know, Hirschman and exit loyalty voice Mm -hmm. and looking at the variables here that when there is absolute inequality that is enforced to such an extent that there is literally no questioning the oppression that the spirit of rebellion has no sort of space to manifest within, I think, is another way that, you know, I think he's making that argument. But I think your interpretation of the Western philosophy thing is probably the most accurate way to view that quote, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it speaks speaks to the lies and hypocrisies of all of the philosophies that we hold dear, which, of course, is what Camus, both in in the myth as well as the rebel, is seeking to also dispel. He's doing this. He's doing he's he's doing multiple layers of work here in deconstructing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so his argument is basically that, you know, this spirit of rebellion can only exist when there is theoretical equality, like you right. said, you know, liberalism, et cetera, but rampant inequality, because yep. that's the only, you know, circumstances in which people will question their existence and then be willing to rebel and gain this awareness, right? Absolutely. All right, so we're going to continue our analysis uh, in the next episode on Section 2, Metaphysical Rebellion. So look for that. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.